1: Good evening, listeners, brave navigators of the enigmatic and the concealed. Have you ever felt the pull of the unanswered, the allure of the mysteries that shroud our existence? For more than a decade, a unique comic publisher has dared to dive into these mysteries, unafraid of the secrets they might uncover. This audacious entity is Paranoid American. Welcome to the mystifying universe of the Paranoid American Podcast. Launched in the year 2012, Paranoid American has been on a mission to decipher the encrypted secrets of our world. From the unnerving enigma of MK Ultra mind control to the clandestine assemblies of secret societies, from the awe-inspiring frontiers of forbidden technology to the arcane patterns of occult symbols in our very own pop culture, they have committed to unveiling the concealed realities that lie just beneath the surface. Join us as we navigate these intricate landscapes, decoding the hidden scripts of our society and challenging the accepted perceptions of reality. Folks, I've got a big problem on my hands. There's a company called Paranoid American making all these funny memes and comics. Now, I'm a fair guy. I believe in free speech uh, as long as it doesn't cross the line. And if these AI-generated memes dare to make fun of me, they're crossing the line. This is your expedition into the realm of the extraordinary, the secret, the shrouded, Come with us as we sift through the world's grand mysteries, question the standardized narratives, and brave the cryptic labyrinth of the concealed truth. So strap yourselves in, broaden your horizons, and steel yourselves for a voyage into the enigmatic heart of the paranoid American podcast, where each story, every image, every revelation brings us one step closer to the elusive truth.
0: episode number nine we're almost in the double digits and tonight i've got a a good friend someone that i've known for a while a few years at least and that is the one the only the majestic the mystic mark what up mark
2: (laughs) what's up i love how your whole setup is concocted you're like a Video editing wizard, you had me appear through the window for the audio listeners, if there is any yet. Uh, yep, there I am in the window. I love it. I'm like the peeping Tom on this podcast. But I just want to point out how freaking sick your video intro is. I mean, that's probably the best intro to any podcast I've ever seen. So
0: kudos that, That's to you. high praise. That's high praise from you, especially since you... I'm like you're the podcast guy, right? Like you must know, I could probably have you sit here and just list like a hundred (laughs) podcasts off the top of your head. And that wouldn't even be all of them.
2: I might be able to do that, but I, I I will say it's impressive. I was sitting here thinking, all right, how much do I need to pay Thomas to get that, get me one of those (laughs) basically, but Hey, you got your own style. I love it. This is so cool. And, 2012 is when Paranoid American started. I didn't know that and I'm glad the intro mentioned it because that's around the same time I kind of got into all this stuff. That's when I graduated from high school actually. It was 2012. So, I don't know what that says about my generation, but it definitely felt apocalyptic to say the least. But uh we're already rolling here in the intro. Let me stop interrupting you and let you get on
0: that's nuts because uh i mean actually i started in like 2006 if i'm being honest but i didn't (laughs) get i didn't get serious and i didn't i couldn't get any of my comics published so in 2012 i said you know i'm gonna stop trying to reach out to other publishers who keep laughing at me or thinking i'm i'm insane or thinking i'm like a crazy and just do it myself but this isn't about me this is about mystic mark and uh, as a quick introduction my Family Thinks I'm Crazy is an incredibly entertaining podcast uh, all kinds of interesting guests constantly. You also have um, like, you're just, you're the guy, you know, like everybody in the community because I think you also run Alt Media United, which is kind of this big, I don't want to call it a conglomeration because it sounds a little too corporate, but it's like oh, a, a collective, a huge, yeah, a, a whole uh, cooperative of sort of all media podcasters you know hence the name so i wanted to to let you describe my family thinks i'm crazy describe mystic mark and describe alt media united a little bit yeah
2: well thanks thomas i appreciate you inviting me here Uh, a little look behind the scenes you actually reached out to me Probably like when I was only 50 episodes in, it was possibly after I did Sam Tripoli's Tinfoil Hat podcast. Maybe that was where you first heard of me or maybe it was Idiocalypse or the shows I was doing with Alex Stein back then. But you did reach out to me and we've been in touch since then. And I'm really grateful to have met you because not only have you come through multiple times delivered very interesting podcast, not only on my show, but on other shows I've booked you on. But you've provided me with some really incredible materials that I've been able to share with my audience, the Skull and Bones comic book, the MK Ultra pamphlets, and a number of really interesting stickers. So yeah, Geronimo's grave, it's so funny how that kind of synchronistically connected us because... For me, Geronimo and Skull and Bones, that's something like a local legend growing up where I'm from. And it took me till after high school to learn about all this stuff. Although I was interested in conspiracies, I didn't quite understand the reality of it. And it it was one day in New Haven where I met a gentleman named Amos who taught me all about Skull and Bones and how they had robbed Geronimo's grave. And sure enough, you know, however many years later, 10 years later, I meet you and you've published a comic book literally portraying the whole incident. And I've actually taken one of those comic books and folded it the way like uh, the Jehovah's Witness will leave something in the like seal of your door. I took one of those comic books and I put it in between the two doors of the Skull and Bones tomb. So I don't know who found that, but... You know, fingers crossed, maybe that's a part of their little memorabilia now, or maybe they have it on display. Maybe they threw it in the trash. Who knows? But uh, yeah, Skull and Bones, that's a subject that I've been... Maybe that's
0: why I can't fly on planes anymore. Oh, God. Yeah, I put you (laughs) on their watch
2: list. I'm sorry. (laughs) Small price to pay. I didn't think about that. I'm like, oh, shit, that has Thomas's name in it and all that. Mm. Hopefully I ripped the back cover out so there was no... Uh,
0: <laughs> right. It's such a common name. So many people have the last name Gorans. It's it's very, very typical. Mm-hmm. Well, if
2: that is your gnome deplore, you picked a very good one because that's vague and uh, maybe we'll never know Thomas's <laughs> real name. But it's funny you say that because I remember the first time you were on my podcast, episode 44. I, I'm i pretty sure we just called you the Paranoid American I don't know if we even said your full name, but, uh, but yeah, either way, that's a long way of going about explaining that I've been interested in this stuff for a long time. And there's a a number of synchronicities that occurred during a delivery job that I had in New Haven that really like pushed me into. I don't know. It's, it's funny because now I think about it a little differently, but then it was all very, uh exciting like wow this is so marvelous that i have this opportunity to be like a undercover you know journalist or detective or whatever you want to call it at yale university because it is such an insulated place if you're not a student there you can't just like wander through the buildings you, you might be able to go in the library you might be able to walk around campus a bit but as an outsider it in a place that felt like it was a part of where I lived, you know, it's like, hey, why can't I explore this magnificent place? And having a job at this bakery allowed me to do that. And I was, I found myself in all these different buildings uh, within the Yale campus. I even went inside of the former uh, lodge where the Wolf's Head secret society met. They have a new building now, but I was in their former building. And on the day George H. W. Bush died. I realized that every Tuesday, I had been delivering pastries in his former home. And I realized that because I looked down at the newspaper and it said, George H.W. Bush died today. Uh, And it said, former resident of New Haven, 88 Hill House Avenue. And that was the same address of the building I was standing in as I read that. So, I mean, there was a number of synchronicities like that that just kind of smacked me across the face. But it was so funny because that pastry spot in particular where we would deliver pastries to, it wasn't like a cafe or anything. A lot of my deliveries were to cafes. This was to a mathematics or economics department. And they just, you know, they wanted like coffee and pastries delivered for their staff every, every Tuesday morning. And uh, the janitor was so fed up with having to let me in while he was vacuuming because I would bang on the door, let me in, you know. So he taught me how to like break into this building. So every <laughs> Tuesday, I would hop a wall, go around to the front, open it up, put the pastries in, and leave. And sure enough, I find out some months later that I had been doing this in the home where George H.W. Bush and George Bush Jr. were l- living when they lived in New Haven. Like this was one of George W. Bush's childhood homes, you know? And that's you were where jumping I- the wall. Yeah. And I was just like, and I thought to myself, geez, I wonder how many times like they (laughs) sat and ate in this courtyard here that I was like jumping a wall to get into. So, you know, number of synchronicities like that, seeing weird things like people going in and out of the secret society buildings, people going in and out of what looked like tunnels, hearing rumors of homeless people falling into tunnels and never coming back. I mean, it's a lot of weird things going on in New Haven. And I started to become very fascinated. And luckily for me, being a delivery driver, I had tons of time to listen to podcasts. And I gravitated towards Sam Tripoli's Tinfoil Hat, The Higher Side Chats, Grimerica Show, among others. And uh, I went to go see Sam Tripoli in New York City. I gave him a copy of The Kabbalion which is The Seven Hermetic Principles. And that just kind of was a key into this other realm like giving him that book unlocked this kind of podcast for me or at least the possibility of it not that it wasn't possible before but I really think of that as a turning point because I had a conversation with Sam very briefly I gave him the book I gave him this interesting like pouch made out of uh, Faraday fabric and he was just like impressed you know and that got me a a chance to go on his podcast sometime after that. And you know I'd always had a knack for this kind of stuff. And I'd always kind of talked about weird conspiracy theories with my friends. And I think Sam kind of picked that up in me and he noticed that in me. And he asked me to do a, a spot on his new spiritual podcast called Zero. So I joined him. I told him about my thoughts on spirituality and Synchronicity and how that had guided me through my life up until that point and still to this day. And uh, it was weird. You know, he says, Oh, I I don't know who I'm going to have next on this podcast. Who do you think I should have next on this podcast? And I'm like, Oh, I'll email you. I emailed him a list like 20 names long. And he's like, Hey, you, you know, maybe I should hire you to do this for me, you know, part time. And if you're good at it, I'll have you do it full-time because I'm getting busier and busier. It's harder and harder to book guests for all these shows I'm doing. So one thing led to another and I ended up working really closely with Sam Tripoli. You know, now I just went and saw him this past weekend. He did a show out here where I live in Connecticut. Got to meet Eddie Bravo and Xavier for the first time, which was cool. But all of that was, again, like so synchronistic. Like, wow, what are the odds that Sam asked me to do that And I had had a podcast at that time called The Bud Triangle, which the concept was that me, my two friends, the three of us were sitting in a triangle smoking Bud and I told them about conspiracies. Because, I mean, you got to think about it in 20... 18, 2017, like a lot of people were still in that old mindset of like, no, conspiracies, that's stuff you see in movies, that's stuff you see in comic books, that's stuff you see in video games, but it doesn't really happen in real life. Sure, there's internet rumors about it, but it doesn't really happen in real life. But with Trump, people started to like actually consider it because they saw weird shit going on. Trump was saying weird shit. QAnon, like things that a president had never said before, things that had never happened on that stage before were happening. So I saw that as an opportunity to like get my friends in on this and talk to them about it. And I was obsessed with podcasts. I was like, I need to start a podcast. But then uh, I eventually gave that name up, the Bud Triangle, because I told my family, I'm like, hey, I'm going to quit my job. And they were so <laughs> excited at this point that I was an Amazon delivery driver. Because back then, too, Amazon was like, you know, billion-dollar company. You can make $18 an hour working for Amazon. Come on, change your life. Like I was one of those guys that got into their scheme because they hired like hundreds of people in those that time period that I got hired at Amazon. So I started delivering packages at Amazon. My family's stoked. They're like, oh, wow, he's finally got like a job that seems good. And then I turn to him, I I'm telling them I'm gonna quit to to work for some guy who lives in Los Angeles. And they're scratching their head like, What are you how is that a good thing? Like, <laughs> what are you talking about? The world's in a pandemic right now. Why how are you that's stupid. And I, truthfully I was fed up with my job because they were doing the stupid laser test every time we got into the building to see if we were sick and made us wear masks as we're moving all this heavy stuff around so I was fed up I quit that job and I said fuck it I have this opportunity with Sam I'm going to dive head first I'm going to start my own podcast and my family thinks I'm crazy that like phrase hit me when I told my family about my new decision you know so I'm like oh shit my family thinks I'm crazy I'm thinking about that. And I'm like, oh, that's an that's a name of a podcast. That's that's my podcast name. And I told Sam and he said, Oh, yeah, that sounds cool. And that that's how it all started. I mean, I've come a long way since, you know, started off just doing it literally sitting down with my friend in a a room around a microphone. And now I have a roadcaster and a road mic and a nice laptop. And that's all really thanks to Sam Tripoli and the people that Tuned into my show early on. Sure, I was lucky to, you know, get onto his platform and be exposed to more people than I would have if I just started off by myself on my own. But I think the synchronicity had to happen, I and mean, that's just how my life works. And you know, I think there's a science to it. I might not have figured it out totally, but I think something in me knew when I was young, like you can quit your you can quit college because this is going to work out for you if you stick with what you like. If you do what you like. And I'd i been really into like the law of attraction stuff around that time too. So, And plus, I, so I had some friends who told me that I would get my student loan debt forgiven. They're like, oh yeah, I know this thing. You just write these papers and you get your student loan debt forgiven. You just got to vote for Bernie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was part of it too, I'm sure. But Yeah, and that never happened. You know, I ended up paying my student loan debt off, but luckily, I only had about a year and a half of debt to pay. So, all that aside, I really believe in uh, that entrepreneurial sort of spirit, taking opportunities that are in front of you and like bending them into a better one. You know, that's kind of what I did with the delivery jobs. Is like, I took that as an opportunity to get paid to learn. And I just listened to so many podcasts that by the time I had an opportunity to do a podcast, I was so ready because I had heard what everyone else was talking about. I knew who I wanted to talk to on the podcast. and I still haven't even come close to hitting like 50% of that list of people that I initially set out to interview because there's tons of people that have inspired me on my bookshelf here. So many interesting authors that I want to talk to on my show. So I appreciate you saying that I, you know, up at the top you said I interview some really interesting people. That means a lot to me because I, I do try to have some standard for who I let on the show. Um and yeah, Alt Media United is kind of like the realization that nobody is trying to elevate this genre as far as Spotify. Apple, like the podcast aggregators, they're not going to ever create a genre called conspiracy theory or alternative research, right? You're just not going to see that. You got history, you got philosophy, you got comedy, you know, you got the main genres and that's it. So I thought, why don't we have a website where everybody could just like put their podcast, and if people want to hear more interesting conspiracy alternative podcasts, they could go there to learn about new ones. You know, like if they they hear about Tinfoil Hat or they hear about my show, and then they go and find Alt Media United, and they say, oh, Tinfoil Hat's connected to all these other shows in a way, like, and albeit the only thing that connects us is that we're doing these shows independently. Like nobody in the cooperative is a part of some giant podcast corporation. You know, it's not like we have like one of those generic podcasts that you hear that always make it curiously into the top 10, top 20, you know, that's that's the kind of (laughs) stuff that we're up against, you know? And I feel like alt media United, the, the, Reason we're cooperative is because if we cooperate with one another, we can all elevate this genre of entertainment to a professional level where people who are good at it can make money and work with each other and rely on each other. You know, and that was motivated in part, a big way, by Sam Tripoli and all the philosophy he sorts of, you know, he kind of generated surrounding the podcasts like tinfoil hat and union of the unwanted like that whole ethos of like we could do this together yeah the algorithm doesn't want us yeah they're censoring us yeah they're suppressing us but at the end of the day if we band together they can't stop us and you see it now where i think most people are are fairly awake to the issues that are most important to us i mean yes there are distractions yes there's division and diversions and all this other propagandized crap but i think for the most part thanks to the pan pandemic you know we are waking up at an unprecedented level and i don't think that it's an accident that there are so many conspiracy podcasts you know like me and juan sometimes we'll talk shit to each other like oh you know, like your podcast is and my podcast, blah, blah, blah. Like, cause we just, we like the competitive, you know, like rap battle. <laughs> like, We like the, fo- the faux competitiveness. Cause we're just, that's just ho- how we are geared. But like in all reality, you know, I've helped Juan out a lot. He's helped me out a lot. We've both made, you know, our audience aware of each other. So like now Sam Tripoli, like I heard Juan talk being talked about on broken sim today with Johnny and Sam Tripoli, like, you know, and I think that's awesome to hear that. I'm not like, oh, they should be talking about me. I'm like, fuck yeah, Juan's awesome. Talk about Juan. He's great. He's doing great research. So that's the kind of thing that more people need to do. And if they're listening to this right now and they're like, shit, my podcast isn't on Alt Media United, all you gotta do is email me because that's, that's as easy as it is. I mean, it's also very. What's the easy. email
0: address? Let me just drop the email address.
2: Yeah, altmedia United at gmail.com. And uh yeah it's just as easy to join as it is to get asked to leave, you know, if you don't cooperate with others, if you're talking shit about other podcasts, that's a pretty easy way for us to say, eh, now we're not going to have you a part of this cuz you're not really that cooperative." But uh you there, know, in fairness, there is there, a lot
0: of beef in the podcast world, isn't there? It's kind of weird. Well, it's,
2: it's it's at levels, you know. It's people who Fight with other podcasts. They usually fight with podcasts who have the same amount of listeners as them. You know what I mean? So, or they or they're punching up and they're trying to like take shots at somebody that maybe
0: they're a little envious of. But uh, yeah, well, again, like rap battles, man. It reminds me of the same exact dynamics of a rap battle where you don't ever punch down because if you ever lose in that situation, like you just put it all on the line for what to punch down at someone, and now you basically switch. Uh, positions with them so I I don't know I I think that there's something really interesting with like the entertainment and the competitive aspect and uh, man like podcasting is almost like competitive talking it's like a sport
2: yeah it's interesting that it can feel that way I think that's more so the case with YouTube shows and shows that are on YouTube because there's more like comments and interactions with the fans and they can be sort of like charged up into being like really into a show because they love being in that fight mentality of like oh
0: yeah f that podcast or we love this podcast so do you think that like there could be some online audiences that convert into cults at some point i
2: think that's like- already the case I mean there's there's definitely a cult following around like certain podcasts for sure and it doesn't and it doesn't appear to make much sense to others who like see that sh- whichever show they might not like and be like, how could anybody watch this? But then there's millions of people that do, so
0: that's a cult in a way. Obviously, there's like an ASMR it might be like a cult that's rising up, and we don't even realize it. And then one day they're gonna say like, you know, a meteor is gonna pass over Earth, and everyone that listens to ASMR has to drink this special potion. Yeah.
2: I'm just glad like celebrities don't seem to do very well in podcasting aside from like the comedian celebrities who have made like a really good niche out of podcasting and actually I think brought more people to podcasting than any other genre is really co- comedy podcasts but uh but yeah no I'm just glad celebrities aren't doing well in podcasting cuz it, it just shows that people are interested in authenticity and that's something that television departed from I think, a few decades ago. And and now we have the majority of people who probably are entertained more by, sure, streaming sites, but things like YouTube and podcasting are creeping into that percentage-wise. So people, I mean, me, myself, I listen to only podcasts. I mean, barely do I sit down and watch the podcast on YouTube. It's really only... I make an exception for like Kill Tony, which I, you got to watch it if you only listen to it. I do I think you you might be missing out but uh but with with certain podcasts it's just it seems like yeah there's a huge cult following and I like to think that I've figured out some ways to make my show really unique and and I've seen success by doing that um but I noticed that like the podcasts that do well are the ones that interact a lot with their audience and, and like yeah there are big exceptions to that but I do notice that like inner audience interaction is a big thing so in that respect who knows maybe in 10 20 years we'll see like actual cults developing out of things that are were initially just like virtual or online I think well, that I'm might curious.
0: In I'm up, curious so. to hear what you've seen as audience interactions that you thought were really clever in the podcast world
2: Well it's interesting because like, yeah, I, I do this for the love of it because I, I am interested in all these subjects and the fact that I can actually make money doing this is a really big thing for me because that's a part of it. It's like
0: millions not, I hear, like tens to, of millions. What do you mean? That's that's how much you can make in the conspiracy podcast world. I mean, it depends on who you're talking about. I don't know about that. <laughs> Jeez, maybe. I don't
2: know. That's funny,
0: well, I, it's actually you. You brought up a really good point. Like, I, I mean, I was kind of joking about that a little bit, but okay. yeah, I remember. Sure. <laughs> well, I remember back in the day when, um, you know, you would go to Barnes and Noble, and they for sure had like a paranormal slash occult section, and it was usually tucked like away or upstairs or something with like a bunch of other uh, true crime and you know kind of undesirable topics, but they had the section. And you could almost always guarantee you'd go up there and find someone else that was, I don't know, maybe wearing Jinkos or had black nail polish or or something, right? But it kind of like drew people to it and you knew that that was the section that had this kind of stuff in it. And in the podcast world, it is weird that that section doesn't necessarily still exist the way that it used to in old bookshops. Um, I don't know. And I think that there's definitely something noble and worthwhile of trying to carve that that sort of category back out uh, to society as a whole within podcasting within everything so it's not just relegated to like this old forgotten aisle of barnes and noble where people aren't even going to know what the hell that is pretty soon right right well i think barnes and noble
2: knows how successful those books do like how well those books do and how there are cult followings for those books and they they consistently sell but it is funny you can learn a lot about the owner of a bookshop by seeing what they don't shelve because I've gone into bookshops where you get only a few conspiracy books and they're all hidden in the history section or you get some conspiracy books and they're all shoved in with the new age books or you know very rarely do I come across a bookshop that has like a really good section on that but surprisingly, Barnes & Noble consistently, because it's a corporation, has a good selection of those sorts of books. So yeah, that's a good point. But to your point, much like the section at Barnes & Noble, it's off near the bathroom or it's off in some weird corner where you wouldn't expect it. And I think the same is true with the algorithm on YouTube and even Spotify and these other at uh, podcast apps where you go and look at the top charts or what they're suggesting it's typically not shows like this there are ex- exceptions to that and shows that break through uh, and I think Apple that's one of their saving graces is that they are pretty honest with the charts like what the charts are I mean they're they're basically how many downloads the podcast is getting you can't get any more honest than that right if the podcast is doing well it gets to number one then again yep. you do have corporations who can buy you know bots to go and do fake downloads on a podcast to make it look like it's doing much better than it is. And they
0: do, but they also have been caught a few times. I remember, man, it was probably like 10 years ago. Sony, Sony and Universal was doing that and they would buy up like millions of views on their YouTube videos when an artist would drop a music video. And then they find out later that it was all bots. And then the artists technically were able to sue the labels for, inflating right. their numbers and making them think that we're doing. But it. it's, yeah, it's a it's a funny world where they'll just pay because it's just a marketing cost, right? Well, if I if I can if pay is X amount. I, you know, I don't know if you remember Obama
2: and Bruce Springsteen had a podcast that ran for like 10 episodes and they did just that. They bought all these downloads, made it look like it was doing so well the first week it came out. And everybody who was reporting on it in the podcast realm was like, Who the fuck heard of this podcast until a week ago? How does it have 100,000 or 200,000 downloads and it's only like one episode? You know, like that's ridiculous. And it just goes to show that, yeah, they can fake that kind of stuff. But for the most part, you know, the fact that shows like Tinfoil Hat can make it into the top 200 and stay there for as long as they have, A, shows how popular a show like that is, but also shows that, you know, they're not, they're not suppressing anything in those algorithms yet. So yeah, I, I think
0: yeah, that's... Shout, shout out to Nick Natoli too, who had the, uh, the boycott Target song at the top of the charts for a while. I was shocked that they didn't suppress that one, put it in like a special category that you had to opt in to even see.
2: Yeah, Sam is friends with that guy. And I, I, I don't know, I think that's his cousin or something. It's weird, but <laughs> I heard about that through Sam and I still haven't heard that song. I go to Target to buy action figures, so maybe I'm revealing too much about Oh myself. no,
0: you haven't boycotted Target. Do you do you pick up the uh, the Bud Light case on the way well, out too? Well, blur my face for this, but I have been
2: known <laughs> to uh I have been known to use take advantage of those self-checkout. Um if you want anybody <laughs> wants to scam to scam Target, all you gotta do is just like rip the barcode off of like a cheaper product. Like let's say you go to the the grocery aisle and you take like the barcode off of like a Gatorade, one of those little Gatorade things, that the sport mixers, the drink mixes. Just rip the barcode off of this, like $3. You put that over the barcode of whatever you want, and then you ring it out, and it looks like you're ringing out what you want. Throw it in the bag, and you're only charging yourself $3. So uh, maybe I'm a little bit of a scumbag for that. But
0: hey, we're boycotting Target, so scam that Target. <laughs> <laughs> there, There's an element of risk in there, because I may or may not have myself been arrested specifically from Target for trying that same Exact oh, yeah? thing in the in the night in, in the nineties, and they brought me back into or allegedly they brought my friend back into the security booth or whatever. And they and again, this is like ninety-seven, ninety-eight, and they've got cameras on each of the aisles. And as the cashier would like ring it up, it would show you on the security camera, here's the thing that just got rung up. So sometimes they would, you know, if you could see someone checking out a TV and it's like, here's your gallon of water it makes it really obvious so just just as a counterpoint there be be extra careful but yeah i i highly cool. recommend it in right. fact this episode is sponsored by stealing from target so if you want to support it. this episode and you want to support mystic mark you can support us by going and stealing something from target
2: yeah well you could also support my podcast so i don't have to steal from target but i'm actually doing it out of choice allegedly uh, to fight back against these automated self-checkout things that are causing you know less jobs in the economy, leading to more homelessness. I mean, it's a trickle-down effect, a la Ronald Reagan. You know, you the more self-checkout machines there are, the less jobs there are. It's just a fact. So, although I do use the self-checkout at Whole Foods because I don't like waiting in line, uh, I boycott every other self checkout by either stealing from it or not using it. So, eventually they're either going to have to give up on the self checkout or turn every store into basically like a a food or item prison where you have to like have a gatekeeper like unlock everything for you or some kind of code where, you know, you put your credit card on it and it automatically charges you. To open it and take it i think that's where we're going to get to is where i can't have-
0: remember what those were called but that was like a, a huge thing in the early uh, 1900s you would go into these big like room and all this food would be behind these little glasses like little lockers and you would buy like right. a key to open it out and take i forgot what they were called, it's called like, they do that in platter. japan
2: those are very popular in japan where it's like a vending machine store and everything's behind a vending machine, and you just walk in and slide your card and say mm-hmm. A, B, B7, T7, you know, and pick out, and it just falls in. But, uh,
0: geez, we've really gone uh, down a, a tangent here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think it's uh, it's interesting just because, the and you were just saying that, like, the self-checkout at Whole Foods. But man, isn't Whole Foods owned by Amazon? So you're right back in the belly of the beast at that point. And their next step is to one-up the self-checkout and just make it so you walk over and grab an apple off the shelf. And it's just like, Mark now has one apple. And you didn't need to tell anyone. Like It just knows that you've got the apple. So I mean, I I don't think there's any use fighting that. I think the only only thing that's going to happen is they're going to keep weeding out people that they deem as risks. So then you're going to go out and get that Apple and it's like the door is not going to open for Mark. And it's just right. going to say, you know, there's a, there's a chance based on your hat and your shoes and the way that you, you know, your gate that we're just going to say, no, thanks, you know, go find another shop uh, wow. to, to purchase from. Yeah. Well, I think
2: that's where we may be heading. And if that's the case, then I'm just going to do everything like uh, on the, d- Pickup or delivery basis where someone else can shop for me and then just send the groceries to my house. Because, yeah, I don't want to be in that the cart. Yeah. <laughs> but hey, you know, this is the electronic world we're heading to. You know, I feel like it's ironic because, you know, the podcast, it's gotten me. Enmeshed in many ways in the system, so to speak, like the internet system and using the internet. My face, my likeness, and all this stuff is on public display on the internet. Uh, but at the same time, my actual life—I mean—I'm freer than ever. I don't have a boss. I don't have—you know—I have a I Technically, I work for Sam, but he's not much of a boss. He's very, hes a friend more than he's a boss. But, uh, but yeah. Yeah, I think that you know that's the blessing. I really appreciate people for like allowing me to to take this journey by supporting the podcast because you know that's the biggest thing I gleamed from podcasting was like how I could free myself from this BS system that I felt like was just oppressing me and leaving me you know depressed. You know, not not to say that my life wasn't fun or interesting or good or like I really enjoy life for sure, but um, you know, working every day was just not not my thing. I mean, whose thing is it? like I'd rather be working on a farm. I've done that before that's fulfilling, right? But the work I was doing previous to driving was not really fulfilling. Driving was great, but at the end of the day, this takes the cake I mean I'm sitting here talking to friends like you and learning about all this stuff, researching it, this is what I think I was uh destined to do in some way. And I think the way I can like give back is by learning about my local area and trying to really like figure out what's going on around here, you know, because this is where it started for me. Um, and I've I found a lot of people are inspired by that. And luckily for them, it leads them to, to their own synchronicities, you know, by taking a newfound appreciation from where they're from the land the history these stories start to pull you in and next thing you know you become a part of the story you know i think that's what's so cool about researching this stuff particularly when it connects to where you're from or where you live your family your ancestry and all those threads that make us a unique person
0: you mentioned in 2012 you were basically just getting out of high school or you were in high school. I'm curious how uh, you don't have to say your exact age, but I'm assuming you were fairly young when 9/11 happened. What was what was your initial reaction to 9/11 when it first happened? And I'm curious like when was your first big conspiracy moment when you were like, you know, Illuminati is real, Skull and Bones is real, 9/11 was an inside job. So I'm 28. I'll be
2: 29 in October. So I was like uh, seven years old when 9-11 happened and I was in second or third grade. And they told us that class was over and we had to go into the library and we went to the library and we watched the news as a group. And then, (laughs) then we went home and it was really weird. And I'm sure that's like, a familiar to sto- a familiar story to anyone my age within like five or 10 years um because yeah i've heard that other people say that where there's, they were in school because it was a tuesday and the classes were closed and they made everybody go into an auditorium or a library or whatever to watch the news which i thought was interesting in hindsight like well if the nation's at war now because there was just an attack. Why are you going to expose all the kids to that? Like, what, don't you want these kids to go home and like feel at least somewhat comfortable and like not like the there's about to be a dangerous war and we all might die? Like, I, it just it, it didn't seem logical at that age, so that never sit sat right with me. So then, I became pretty patriotic, like oh yeah, we got to fight these Iraqis and we got to fight. Find <laughs> the the <world>. programming worked. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And We got to find Osama bin Laden. And like, I remember watching Fox News with my parents or like Christmas, like 2001, that Christmas, like my parents were like glued to the TV because like all the soldiers were like, you know, going off. And this trip. was like
0: Kiko O'Reilly years too.
2: Right. And the soldiers were going off to Iraq or whatever. I don't remember exactly the, the specific circumstances, but they were interviewing soldiers who were in the Middle East. And, you know, oh, it was a big deal because it was Christmas and they weren't going to be home for the holidays because now we're in this big war. And so I was pretty sympathetic to that cause. And I, I just like thought about it over the years as I got older. And I started to realize like, oh, my grandparents and my father and like, these people that watch the news and, and re- repeat these talking points and this rhetoric, like this isn't their own thoughts. Like they're not actually like thinking these things through. Because when I started to have a little like small, the smallest whiff of dissent, I was immediately smashed for my uh, contrary opinion. So that was a big red flag for me as a young, inquisitive, curious person. Cause I'm like,
0: is this within your family or within your school or everything? Everywhere,
2: anything. Like, I mean, I, I'm not really speaking to a specific circumstance, but I remember having conversations with my grandfather, my mother, my father, you know, anybody that I, was near the news around, or, you know, sometimes you'd be at a gas station, you'd hear people over here, someone having a conversation like, oh yeah, we need to kill all these brown people. You know, I live in Connecticut. It's a fairly, it's a blue state as far as voting goes, but there's tons of Republicans here and tons of people, despite political allegiance felt that way during that time. So to me, it felt like, oh, these people aren't really like thinking for themselves They're sort of just like getting like emotionally agitated. And that's where a lot of this is coming from because they would just get really upset. You know, I think it was like family parties, you know, uncles, or like I'd hear people have these conversations about like that. And I'd be like, well, you know, I just raised a contrary point of view. And that would just get people upset, you know? And I remember really like regretting, uh, Having so much like fervor around, like, oh, yeah, we need to get Osama bin Laden. Cause I was what, like, as I got older, like 2006, seven came around. I think around then I was in middle school and I watched Loose Change, which was a documentary about 9 11 that came out. It was, you know, edited a number of times. And it's funny, I actually interviewed Jason Burmis, who, uh, although he wasn't the only person part part of it, he claims that he like basically m- made the best version of loose change. So I don't know. I, what... I've
0: heard similar from uh, I think his name's Dylan Avery. I, I went to school with him when I was in like elementary school in in uh, upstate New York. Yeah. Oh, wow. Isn't that yeah, crazy? They... Another, another synchronicity.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I don't know exactly who the people were, but they were fairly young. I remember like hearing their voices on the documentary and thinking like, oh, these are people my age mm-hmm. doing this.
0: And, you know it was that like, and then zeitgeist too that was the other big one around that same time yeah this girl that i sat next to
2: in math class i had a crush on her and i think she she might have liked me back because she suggested that i watched zeitgeist i always remembered
0: that. oh that's awesome that's that would be like love it at first sight of someone if, yeah. Uh, yeah, if like oh you should check out zeitgeist <laughs> it's like one yeah, of those memes <laughs> I had no game back then, but that
2: certainly was a, a good sign. If I had game, I should have followed up with that. But
0: no you could have I, given her I, one of those nine eleven I'm falling for you cards and she probably would have dug it.
2: <laughs> I've never heard of that, but I might no? I want I'm to I know I wanna yeah, add
0: those to the shop soon. <laughs> oh, cool, cool.
2: So yeah, all that to say like it kind of dawned on me afterwards that like there was a lot of wartime propaganda that I fell for and you know I got into martial arts and for a moment you know when I was a kid I was into like military stuff I thought I would join the military I had like airsoft guns and I printed out like Osama bin Laden targets out of my <laughs> my grandparents <laughs> printer and they're you, you
0: were gonna karate chop the shit out of him weren't you I was, no
2: I wasn't doing karate chops I was doing like sniper practice with my airsoft okay. guns. I printed out like you know like paper you, said you took
0: you took uh, martial arts too Right, right,
2: but yeah, I would I would try to like chop pieces of wood and dumb shit like that. But eventually, I had like a heavy bag that I hung from a tree in my backyard. But that was much much later, after, well into because Obama was in office for like for me from uh, through high school. I think around high school he got elected, and then did the uh, school like
0: celebrate that at all? Like was
2: was um too because we were meant to we were made to watch that too, his inauguration, which we weren't ever made to watch Bush's inauguration in school. Well, this was
0: historic. It was the first president of of color in history, right?
2: And also allegedly the first gay president, too. But uh we don't have not not the first CIA president though. Well, he might not be the first gay president. Now that I say that, I mean geez, the people in this 1700s 1800s it's a spectrum
0: man it's a spectrum what are you gonna do you know you throw I'm a not
2: dart judging. And... <laughs> I'm not judging. we might have another gay president if uh if joe biden runs again but anyways um oh wait he is the president
0: so anyways um what were we talking about um well actually this is a, the perfect time to segue into some rapid fire questions but i want to start it out with one very important question uh, and there is a right answer to this one. It's not a trick question. Mr. Mark, are you a cop? Because if you're a cop, you have to tell me. Would a cop smoke as are you a cop cop? I do on a podcast? That could be fake weed. I don't know. No, I'm pretty
2: sure it's not fake weed. <laughs> I think, I think I you've got the good shit. If I was a cop, wouldn't I
0: say right away that I'm not a cop? Is Are you trying to play some like double reverse psychology on me, sir? That's something that a cop might do.
2: I'm just saying, if I was a cop, this podcast would be a pretty good cover. If I was trying to investigate some sort of uh, podcast drug ring or
0: something like that. The online Waco, yeah, you can start shipping people defunct grenade shells. <laughs> that would
2: be a really poor decision on the part of whatever department hired me to send me in as a mole for Sam Tripoli's podcast. If I was trying to get in with anybody, I think Sam Tripoli is not the way to do it. Uh, I love Sam; Sam's amazing, but you know, he definitely has—he has. Uh, he has it exposed his intentions and his beliefs, you know, enough to where, yeah, they there's no moles in the tinfoil hat podcast.
0: But no, I'm not a cop. Uh if I okay, was a let, cop, let the record show that Mystic Mark declared he is not a cop, 805 Eastern. But you know, I have, I have right.
2: ideas of being a cop. That would be fun. I mean, not that yeah. I believe in police. Like I, I do believe there's a lot of corruption in police forces and I would like to see an end to that. But you know, I I live in a blue state on the East Coast, so there's a lot of bullshit that goes on. And sometimes I'm like, if I was a cop right now, I'd be pulling that motherfucker over, or where, you know, <laughs> whatever the case may be. Sometimes I'm like, yeah, I wish I was a cop right now. My girlfriend makes fun of me because she's like, oh, you're such a you're such a do gooder, you're such a, a rule follower. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I don't have a real job. I'm I'm like basically. You know, off out of the system. Like, what are you talking about? But no, I, I like cops. I'm not a cop
0: though. Well, you might. I don't know. A rule follower is the right way to describe it. But even as you were saying a little bit earlier, that the way that the school kind of showed you the 9/11, right? And you were thinking later, like that logically didn't make sense to you, and you could never really resolve it, and that sort of added to. That feeling of deception or, or some kind of manipulation, I assume. And I don't. That, I think that might be part of that same facet, right? It's not that you need rules, but that you think in logical terms of like action consequence. You know what actually makes sense for all of these things to happen. So yeah. sometimes that that can be sort of misconstrued as being a, a rule follower, but really it's more like having a comfort, having a system to to work by that things don't yeah. just arbitrarily change and get subjective. I
2: yeah I agree with that and I, I mean I've always been very uh, scientifically minded. I had an affinity for like classification of animals and plants. I, I mean I have, I know every animal. Like if you show me a picture of an animal, any animal, I could probably tell you what name. But it, but anyways, if I could append your question earlier before you asked me if I was a cop, another kind of wake up for me, and this relates to the cop thing. Not that that was a serious question, but the whole um, the whole Occupy Wall Street thing happened around the time that I graduated from high school and just after I had graduated from high school you know and I, I went into college that same year 2012 the fall of 2012 the green the center of the downtown New Haven historically it's always been a place where people are allowed to come to protests practice free speech so after Occupy Wall Street there was a ton of people that they kind of lived in these like homeless camps, uh, in certain places that they occupied, and the Green was one of them. So there was like a spillover of those types of people that were around during that time period that kind of influenced me to be a little bit more anarchistic and free thinking and like fuck the police type mentality. And Let's that's smash the another- Starbucks. <laughs> And that's another thing that kind of now I think twice about in the same way that I was like, I kind of fell for the war propaganda at a very young age and then I wised up to it. I kind of think of police as like, sure, there are corrupt polices, police officers, there's corrupt police forces, there's whole towns that are, you know, controlled by corrupt police. Sure. I've had my run ins with the police. I've been, I've been put in a hole in cell once, you know, I, I I've done things. I'm not the perfect person. I've never hurt anybody, but I definitely had my run-ins with cops. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I could hate cops from that position, but I don't because I see that there are good cops and that like for the most part, I'd rather live in a country where there's order and that pe- bad guys get arrested for doing things like hurting people or breaking in houses or selling drugs that kill people and leave people you know, basically poisoned mentally and physically. So... Yeah, I do like cops now. Whereas if you asked me what what I thought about the police when Bernie Sanders was running for president, I would have been like, F the police, you know, and throw on NWA, you know, like let's rock. Like, <laughs> you know. So yeah, I definitely have have grown to think about my thoughts in hindsight. And I think that's, you know, a good thing when like some people they don't like, especially now you're having a podcast. You know, you put your opinions out there and then people change their mind over time. And maybe that's doesn't sit right with people who listen to these podcasts and like, whoa, oh, I loved your podcast because I agreed with you and now I don't agree with you. And it's like, well, maybe that means that you need to grow up too, or like maybe that means you need to change too. And hey, we might not have the same change, but that I'm changing, right? And I think that's important for everybody to have that flexibility. To be able to change their mind on a topic or an opinion or a perspective, if you know better reasoning comes along to show you otherwise, you know I don't think there's anything wrong with having an opinion, but uh, but yeah, I've I've definitely had moments where I've looked back and said like oh, I was really wrong about that, and I like that. I especially like having those moments on the podcast. I think that shows people that oh maybe. I don't know everything. So don't go emailing me and saying, like, well, you need to do blah, blah, blah. blah." It's like, hey, I'm not perfect. You know, I'm not going to get everything right. But also,
0: it's a good point because I think in this community, too, sort of like in the scientific community, there's certain people that have almost made their career on certain perspectives and viewpoints. And I kind of feel like sometimes in the back of my head, even if they change their mind on something, like, let's say that. Flat Earth was your thing, right? And you just made it your thing and you became an authority on it. What happens if, you know, you've got like a huge following and a Patreon and and subscribers and they all want to talk about how they agree with you on Flat Earth? If you were to change your mind, you know, are you ready to give all that up or would you just keep playing the act and you just I don't know? I have, yeah. Just yeah, exactly. Just, just lean, lean into it, it and but, becomes like a thing. Like right. like wrestling.
2: I yeah, and you know, I don't want to. Speak on anybody specifically because I have friends that believe in flat Earth, and you know, one of the first podcasts I ever recorded was with my friend Reva, who lives on a farm and lives by the Bible. She lives by the what it says in the Bible, and one of her beliefs that she cannot be shaken on no matter what is that the Earth is flat, and I respect the hell out of her for that because it's it's made her life better. Maybe not that aspect specifically, but just living by the Bible. You know, and everything that comes with that has made her life better. I mean, I envy her lifestyle. She owns you know, her and her family own a, a dairy farm and it's beautiful. It's a beautiful situation to live in. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing to your point. Like, I think the internet has this aspect to it where you can find yourself in a silo, you know, and I've found one particular YouTuber who, you know hey everybody has a past maybe he's changed sure but there's one guy in particular who's done some pretty weird shit in the past and it's public information now other YouTubers have talked about it but he's you know he's got like this cult following and some people were like oh you should have this guy on your podcast and i had to make the decision like okay do i want to have this guy on you know or do or do i not and like ultimately the thing that from his past did factor in a little bit because that's the type of person I am where if I know something about you that I don't like, I might not like you, you know? And that's just, that's just my character. I don't know.
0: Wait, 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 but you'll deliver pastries to a genocidal war criminal family, man. This this well, guy Yale, here Yale University
2: Yale University's <laughs> Economic Department although it is weird that they are in the former home of the Bush department I don't know that, that there are any Bush people that but that I mean be I might point. argue
0: that oh, Yale's yeah. Economic Department could be even worse, worse. than the Bush family yeah,
2: yeah. I, Oh, I mean, oh yeah I'm definitely <laughs> I I did say earlier that I'm not you know not the best person but yeah that's a good point maybe
0: I shouldn't throw stones at glass houses <laughs> Well, well, I'm, I'm actually, this was a, an awesome sort of concept that changing your mind in this this kind of like category, it's, it's weird. Like saying community is such a weird thing because it doesn't always feel like an actual community. It's just like a shared interest. But in this community, changing your mind about certain topics feels a little more rare than it should. And sometimes it takes more effort. But with that in mind, keep in mind that like open flexibility and, you know, I want to figure out where you're at right now on a whole bunch of different sort of topics. So I'm going to mention something almost Rorschach style. And I just want you on a scale from one to 10 on how much you believe it. So if it's, you know, if you say like a zero or a one, then it just means you think it's a psyop it's nonsense. And if it's 10, you're like all in and you would want to convince everybody else to be all in because you're so convinced. So make, make sense. Okay. And if there's ones that you like you want to have to add qualifiers and like, oh, let me explain this more, just give it like a five and we'll 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 circle back around to most of these, okay? So, so here we go. Rating these on a one through five scale? One through five, ten. One, one through ten. Three, five five means, you know, like you're on the fence. Okay. Was Bob Marley assassinated?
2: Ten. Absolutely.
0: Do you think there's hidden treasure on Oak Island?
2: Depends on your definition of tre- treasure. I think buried pirate gold. Uh, I'm glad this is a scale because I
0: would say six for this one. Okay. Okay. Was the Black Plague engineered by ancient elites of the time? Seven. <laughs> okay. Are chupacabras real? four do you think jack the ripper's identity was covered up by the british monarchy yes 10 do you think big pharma <laughs> hides natural cures to maximize profits absolutely the, the, the correct answer there would have been 20 or 30 <laughs> is the is the patterson gimlin bigfoot footage genuine well, you were there uh, last time I
2: talked about it uh, with Nate for Reality Stars. When you, you, you guys
0: got, were more convinced when I showed you the stabilized footage.
2: Yeah, you showed me this footage, and although I, you know, I don't remember how everybody else felt. And I'm usually, I, I could be, I tend to be somewhat of a pushover, although I don't like to admit that. But if other people present me with like a pretty good opinion, I'm, I can waver. But I still, I still, that still sticks with me. That was one of the first times I ever really like saw something a, a, outside of the norm. Like when I was reading Ripley's Believe It or Not in my elementary school library, and I saw the screen or the still image of uh, one of the frames from that footage in Ripley's Believe It or Not, and I just looked at it, and I was like, "Whoa, that's a real animal!" I just always thought that was a real. Because it, it was in
0: Ripley's. <laughs> Well, it just,
2: the image just always, it just always struck me as, like, that's an animal. Like, you know, like, as I said earlier, I love animals. If you show me any animal, aside from sea creatures, for the most part, and insects, I can identify pretty much any
0: animal. Are we talking six or are we talking ten here? I'm talking for Specifically the the Patterson-Gimlin footage. Not Bigfoot as a whole, but the Patterson-Gimlin footage in particular.
2: All right. So then I were I did learn some things that call it into question. So I'm going to go with 7, which is much lower okay. than Okay,
0: that's expected. that still sounds like it's it's pretty credible. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um did werewolves exist within the last 500 years? And by werewolf, I mean like a truly shape-shifting, now you're a wolf, now you're a person, now you're a wolf kind of deal. Yeah, 10. 10. Uh, do governments already possess free energy technology and they're just suppressing it from us? Well,
2: yeah, of course. What else
0: are those UFOs? 10. Can you harvest energy from crystals alone and not like lasers, but like can you just go out and, and farm crystals? Whoa, I'm, I'm, so, I'm holding is that a 10? That 10. ten. And then finally, did Alistair Crowley really talk to an alien and or demon?
2: Um, I'm going to say he definitely talked to a demon. So if we're going to say demon,
0: then yeah, eight demon. Eight. Uh, so I want to start on that one and work backwards a little bit because right. I'm truly fascinated at the concept of angels and demons and good and evil, especially as objective things. Because just like you were mentioning everything has to fit a certain logic and make kind of sense. Once you start talking about true evil or true good, it feels like that. And there's this realm of, you know, subjectiveness. So I want to just understand first, like, are you religious when you talk about demon? Are you talking about like, um, like a Christian version of a demon or do you interpret demons as like some other kind of entity?
2: I don't think I, that's the thing. I don't think about it in terms of Christian or the other. I mean, maybe this is I, this could be simply answered with just a yes, but I would say that you know, regardless of your cultural context, they exist. You know, I mean, if Christians have studied it and have information about it, I treat that as equal to what a shaman in a tribe would say, let's say in Siberia or South America or Africa or Australia or North America, like even Europe, there are groups everywhere, literally all seven continents who have lore, rituals, experiences with entities that they describe in a number of ways. I mean, I recently talked to Paul Stobbs who's convinced that they're all connecting with the Nephilim when they say ancestor worship. But uh, I mean, regardless of what they mean by ancestors, there's clearly something that people let into their, their psyche and let they let that possess them. And we have other versions of that where people are possessed against their will and maybe things start to manifest in their life that lead to ill Illness or misfortune. So, I, I pe- people have had those experiences throughout time. You know, I don't think there's any discounting that. It's just people don't like to believe it because it's uncomfortable. And I think, unfortunately, the way you live your life, whether it's behavior that's learned or genetic, you know, I think some people, they just have a propensity to attract negativity and they live maybe a life that's a harder than someone who has the opposite effect where they attract positivity. I think there's ways of even reversing it where you know maybe you're a very negative person and something changes and now you have a more positive turn in life and your karma or your destiny or however you want to term it changes. But I think these beings, they whatever they are, demons, You know, I don't think it's necessarily a religious context because every religion talks about some form of uh, or another of this. So I think, you know, when it comes down to it, there are ways to live your life correctly, healthily, and avoid those types of beings. And I think those types of beings take advantage of us when we are not living our life in a correct or healthy way, you know, a correct being definitely on a spectrum you know, there's not one way to live your life, but uh, as far as like the seven deadly sins or like what you shouldn't shouldn't do, it's pretty pretty established across the world, right? So I think demons they gravitate to people who commit murder and things like. Well, maybe
0: that. there's one there's one example that's somewhat famous from Jordan, uh, not Jordan Maxwell, although I love Jordan Maxwell, um, from Joseph Campbell, and he mentioned I think this was a, a Marco Polo book, but. He goes to, um, or it might have been a different historian. He goes to a, a foreign land and he sees at a funeral, the family of the deceased is eating their body. And he thinks, you know, these people are devils. They're demons. This is like the most disgusting thing that like, how could you possibly not venerate your dead? Why aren't you treating it with more respect? And they were like, well, this is how we respect the dead. What, what do you guys do? What do you mean? You just bury it in the ground and let it waste away. What about all of the knowledge and the wisdom that needs to be transferred to the rest of the family and passed down? So clearly, culturally, something as horrific as maybe cannibalism could be seen as a good thing. Uh, you know, aside from Kuru and you know getting like a, a protein in your brain that eats it away and turns it into mush. But like, I don't think the morality version of that was evil. But the point being made from that story was that when he went back and told all of his, you know, Christian um sort of um family and friends and and everybody else that they thought that was just absolute Satan, right? Like nothing but Satan would be causing someone to do that. And it was right. just this complete, you know, disconnect. So I mean I'm I'm curious in that regard, but I also want to ask you since you're familiar with Alistair Crowley, you've you've talked about him a few times and read a lot of his stuff. Do you think that someone that was secular um atheist um, you know, agnostic, could go and pick up Crowley's work, read through it, and successfully summon a demon? Or do you think you'd actually have to, like, do horrible things and become a negative person and actually become evil in order to attract the evil? Or do you think that, you know, magical incantations and rituals and sigils and stuff could bring you there alone?
2: Well, I think people have a Hollywood version of what they think of as, like, demon an evil. Well, it shoots laser eyes out of its eyes. That's basically no. <laughs> but I think yeah, evil can manifest in a way, in ways that you don't recognize. Like you can become a version of yourself that you never wanted to be. That's a, that's a version of evil where you neglect yourself or you neglect others. You abuse yourself or you abuse others. I think that's a form of evil and maybe people who, you know, take a, a sort of negative vibration in life and stick with that cord end up attracting something that agrees with that negative vibration and then manifest more of it in that person's life in like a parasitic way, you know? I think in that sense, Alistair Crowley's books could, yes, perfectly, like uh, if you follow the, the recipe perfectly, maybe you could... You know, do something that would, uh, you know, an atheist would then kind of have like a revelation from and be like, oh, I don't, there, have, there must be something more now. That's possible, but I don't think that someone like that would have the same results as somebody who was like naive or innocent or had like a magical mindset. I think those people actually shouldn't interact with this kind of stuff because those, those are kind of like the people who are to use my name in vain. They're like the marks for this, the spiritual scam that is like these parasites. I've experienced it myself by taking Alistair Crowley's book out in public. Like I attracted the vibration that was associated with that book. And uh, you know, homeless schizophrenic type person I don't know. I'm not judging them. I don't have any ill feelings about them. (laughs) But that's how that's the best way I could describe them. They looked homeless. They kind of looked disheveled. They walked into the cafe that I was working in where I happened to have this book. And it was too busy of a cafe for me to read. But I've always been obsessed with books. So I just keep a book with me in case I have a moment to read. And that day, I happened to bring that book along. And this guy walks into the cafe and he opens up a Bible, sits down at the table and puts these little candles on the type that are electronic, with the little battery. So he, he turns these little candles on and he's doing his own little like seance right there in the cafe. He's like, he wanted it. to do
0: a wizard war.
2: That was, that was him challenging you. It might've been. Cause I, I accepted his challenge. I walked over to his <laughs> table and I said, sir, you need a coffee to be in this realm conducting magic. Uh, <laughs> I didn't say that, but said you need a coffee to be in this cafe. or You need to buy something, and he's like, "I'm gonna buy something in a minute." And he was got offended, like, but hey, don't get you know, don't get mad at me. You look like a homeless person. You you know, we have this problem all the time. You can't just come in here and beat the heat. You, like, it's just not the way life works. Sorry, I didn't. I didn't make it this way. You know. So that was my job. Unfortunately, was kicking out homeless people. So he bought a coffee, and as he angrily bought a coffee from me, he says to me, "You know, I'm the seventh incarnate, or I'm the the grandson of Aleister Crowley and the seventh incarnation of Charles Manson. You know, some crazy, like aggressive." boast <laughs> that included the name Alistair Crowley and Manson. And the weird thing is the book wasn't like on the shelf. It wasn't on like the, the coffee bar in front of me. It was underneath on a shelf. So it wasn't like in view. This guy didn't see me reading it when he walked in. He just walked in and the book was under there. And so it was very weird that his like angry statement that he made was I'm the you know incarnation of Charles Manson and the great grandson of Aleister Crowley or whatever you know I forget exactly this the you know pronoun he used but uh yeah it was it was very odd and that kind of stuck with me to this day like these books that Aleister Crowley wrote have like a weird energy especially the 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 book I had in particular it's called Book Four it's all about magic and he talks about sacrificing a child being, you know, the most, most energetic ritual or whatever. And all these Crowley apologists say, Oh no, he's actually talking about masturbation. He's not actually talking about killing a child. He's talking about, that's scenes. interesting.
0: I haven't, I hadn't heard that before. So no. they're saying it's like spilling your seed was him yeah. saying, sacrificing right. a child. And it is weird. Cause he has like, he's He's a
2: per, particularly perverted writer he's these poetry books, one of them called Snowdrops," which itself sounds like a a double entendre for you know come but uh he writes about like these really weird pedophilic relationships in that book, like a sailor and a and a deck boy or whatever they called it back in the day uh some young girl and an older guy. So he has this perverted poetry and when I read that book, I didn't buy it, but I knew what the what it was and I saw it on the bookshelf. So I looked through it. Somebody bought it a few weeks after I looked through it cuz it was gone. But I signed looked at <laughs> I probably would have grabbed it if it was a signed copy. <laughs> no, uh I looked at the the poetry and it was such a it was so perverted. I was like, "Wow, I really regret ever interacting with this guy's material after reading this and it was all around the time when like pizzagate had reached like a fever pitch and people were doing like save the save the children marches and stuff and it all culminated to sam and i having that podcast on tinfoil hat where he like yells at me because he thought i was defending alistair crowley after i told him all these evil things i suppose Aleister Crowley could have done because it was all allegedly like that's one weird thing about him I think it goes to show that he was kind of a a a guy who was protected to some degree because he was involved in espionage and MI6 you know although not on the record you know he did allegedly do things that appear to be you know uh, ordained by the crown so to speak so you know maybe they had a hand in covering up his crimes but for the most part there's no like evidence other than his own writings and what other people write about him and what authors have written about him to suggest that he did anything criminal he was abusive sure but he never there's no evidence that he did anything criminal he did get kicked out of italy and there was rumors that he was doing some satanic rituals with some woman and her children which hey, that could be it right there. And I I made that point on that podcast. But that is like a shadow looming over me, that interview. Because since then, I have just haven't really talked much about Crowley. I did one episode with uh, Chaney because she asked me to specifically talk about Alistair Crowley. And she's awesome. I really uh, appreciate her. She had me on her show back when I didn't even have a podcast yet. So she's awesome. If she asked me to research him again. I'd do it for, her, but uh, but I, I just don't. Uh, I just I'm not interested in him as much as I used to be because I do feel like his energy, whatever it represents, can lead people into a dark place, and that might be something that people bring to themselves and manifest themselves, and you could blame them for that. Maybe other factors in their life that are to blame for it, but for me, it did feel like the closer I got into that material, the more weird, sort of dark tinged things would happen.
0: Why do you think uh, that we, in particular, has so much, I guess, influence still today? Like, like people, you know, wear shirts and they do this hand signs and they drop the name. Uh, and maybe this is a subjective statement, but why do you think that Crowley is more popular than, say, like Flavatsky or any other number of occultists from that time? What is it about Crowley in particular that still resonates? It's just
2: his publicity stunts. like he was somebody who like believed in no such thing as bad press, that whole motto. you know he and he revelled in being seen as the biggest, baddest man in the world and May, wickedest evil, whatever he wanted to call himself. Maybe that played into his cover. And, you know, a lot of what it seems like he was doing, if you read uh, Richard Spence's work, is it seems like he was going into secret societies that were prevalent at the time and sort of busting them up from the inside just by being uh, an asshole and just having like a really <laughs> rash and kind of self centered uh, narcissistic personality. He had his, you know, positive aspects, but he had a lot of flaws that I think outweigh those positive aspects. And he maybe used that to uh, an edge. Like it was his sort of weapon against these secret societies. Because if you look at his track record, like he goes into, what was it? The Golden Dawn first or um, the Order of Philema. I, I think that was what he started. The Order of Thelema eventually became that. But there were two groups that he joined. And after leaving those groups, he was either the leader or had a fight with the leader. And like, I think both of them ended up kind of failing and kind of becoming something else. So I wonder to myself, it seem, seems like Spence implies this too with his research. It's like maybe there was a secret agenda to like, break up these groups because they saw the political power that these groups might pose in rival to what the crown in England had going on because they were very much trying to get their control over America and all the other territories still to this day i think england is you know if not in control of america has some sort of control over american politics and i think they use agents like Crowley back then at least to bust up a lot of these secret societies so to answer your question more you know, accurately you know pop culture made Crowley who he is after his death I mean bef- before he died he I don't think he was even really that well known outside of the weird community of people who are interested in this kind of stuff you know he had letters and correspondence with like Parsons and other people like that. But as far as I know, he was like a drug-addicted old man and died kind of miserably. But because of that like publicity stunt sh- streak that he had, I think like the rock and roll hippie movement kind of latched on to that because it was counterculture. You know, his his ideas represented a lot of what they felt in the counterculture. And you see him in the Beatles. Album. You see him in uh, Ozzy Osbourne's song. You see you know, Led Zeppelin's guitarist Jimmy Page obsessed with him to the point of buying his former residence and kind of spiraling into a really weird place in his life. I mean, you look at what his band members said about him at that period in his life, and it seemed like they even didn't really understand what was going on with him. So, yeah, there was the power that like pulls people in with Crowley. And I mean, maybe that's because he was particularly interested in being this child of the new Aeon. And in order to do that, he had to interact with these devilish negative spirits and like make those bargains where, yeah, we'll make you famous, we'll make you powerful, but there's going to be a risk to this reward we're giving you or there's going to be a uh, consequence to this benefit you're getting and that's like the classic like thing the jazz players said around that time too like oh you go down to the crossroads and you make a deal with the devil you know like mm-hmm. that old southern tale right like that's that's something that people even talk about to this day people going down Well the crossroads.
0: even even now when someone gets popular and they get like a billboard top hit the automatic is like oh i wonder what you know family member they had to sacrifice in order to get that number 1 hit well, so i and I, think- I feel like it still happens today I think that's more to the point of like,
2: you know, your earlier question about why is Crowley more well known over like Blavatsky and these other people? It's because I think culture just moves on and there's these trends that go on and people forget. Like, I wonder in 50 years if people are going to look back and be like, oh, remember when people did like social media and had phones in their pockets? I mean, how crazy was that? Meanwhile, we're here in 2020 something and you know in the eighteen hundreds, people were doing seances. that was a popular thing to do on a Friday night. go to a seance and maybe talk to some spirits, get some insight from you know a dead famous person like you know we're gonna channel the the mind of freaking... uh what's his name uh over in russia the 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 guy who Rasputin. Had, yeah Rasputin or you know like saint Germain or whatever you know whatever they were advertising and a lot of that stuff that you know in the 20s and 30s they looked at it as silly and fake and snake oil salesmen. and that's a big reason how like uh the holistic medicine got phased out to answer your other point that was on the list about like pharmaceutical companies suppressing holistic or natural cures they lumped all that stuff together as like folklore and hokum and you know uh pseudo witchcraft type bs you know and and that's a, a big reason why we're in this chemically in, induced society now where everything's a prescription or chemical or warning label. And, you know, I don't think they would have saw that coming back then. But to get back to my question about Crowley and my larger points, like secret societies were in vogue at a certain point in this country. So things like getting, you know, some sort of up upper edge, you know, or uh getting ahead in life, so to speak, you could maybe accomplish that by communicating with some lost you know relative from beyond who gives you some kernel of wisdom you can use or make a deal with some entity and local elemental spirit or something like that. I think that was a lot more commonplace, and maybe musicians kind of carried that information along as music became more part of the culture and less of a thing that was like commonplace, like music used to be something in the community. Like there'd be like a guy playing guitar at a bar and everybody went to that bar. You know, they, nobody like it, they just played the same fucking 10 songs or made up a few songs, but people didn't like know music for weren't while. going
0: on tour with like huge yeah.
2: productions. And yeah, yeah it wasn't like a thing where people were like, oh yeah, have you heard of this guy? It was just like, oh, this guy plays guitar. That's nice. You know, like let's, that's that's
0: really interesting because you mentioned earlier when you're talking about Crowley, that he really reveled in that narcissism and like self-promotion and, you know, no, no, uh, like bad press is good press, right? Like all press is good press for him. And I kind of see that resonate with, I guess, Hollywood and rock and rollers, like the Beatles famously bigger than Jesus, right? That was, a sacrilege thing to say, uh, but it was right on the exact same lines of Aleister Crowley calling himself the wickedest man in the world and the great beast because it was this like outlandish, like how dare anyone, you know, say that they've got this much power. And now that's pretty much what being a celebrity is. It's having the balls to be like, I'm the best at this thing, you know? Um, And I feel like maybe that's that energy. Maybe that's the Crowleyan energy is just being like, you know, balls out.
2: That's a good comparison you make, too. I mean, bringing Hollywood into this, as I was just thinking, like theater kind of played a big role in bringing the occult from that time period into the modern time period. I mean, people think about trends now and they're instant, right? Everybody knows around the world or around the English-speaking world what's trending if they are in touch with it, right? But back then... You know when you had the eighteen thirty two anti masonic movement, a lot of the secret societies on the East Coast either disbanded, became public, or went underground and I started to wonder, and I haven't really ventured into this research much, but I start to wonder you know maybe that instead of just like giving up, they move west and it seems like secret societies maintain popularity. As the frontier went west, as, you know, this trend maybe big, died dude, out. Big
0: time. Not, not only that, I think that there, I've been pulling at this thread too, because on the East Coast, you had people still going to the court up until the 1700s. I think like in the early 1800s was the last uh, trial where a man was put on trial for being a wizard. He was acquitted, but it shows that there was still a legal process in place for prosecuting people that were allegedly dabbling in magic or black arts. Meanwhile, on the West Coast, you had Rosicrucianism, which was pretty much as a cult as it kind of got at that point, but they didn't have that same um, sort of you know, derogatory relationship to being you know, devil worshippers or evil or burn them at the stake. And I think there was a huge difference between the West Coast and the East Coast and the West Coast kind of flourished and we still see that today uh, and a completely different vibe and mentality because of that. Right. Well, and and people
2: forget too like how closely connected the East Coast was to Europe whereas like the Midwest and the West became really the America that we know today and and contributed more so in in some ways to what America is now. But yeah, the West, you know, the further you go went west back then the wilder and more outlaw it was and I think a lot of those secret groups that dabbled or Frequently utilized occult ritual activity to their benefit went west. I mean, you see the Rosicrucians and Bohemian Grove and all these other things that are out there that even to this day are still maintaining, you know, some membership. I don't know what their activities are, but uh, but I wonder because to bring this back to Hollywood, you know, how much of the Crowley popularity. Was also be or due in part to his interest in the West Coast because he traveled to California. He was in California around that time that Hollywood was kind of beginning. You know, when like a lot of the like uh,
0: theater acts became like movie studios, like that kind of when that was also before uh, actors were necessarily celebrities too. Just right. kind of like where you were mentioning with the musicians, like there weren't necessarily these huge blockbuster celebrities up until around that time.
2: And I think that's that, and that's kind of where I was angling this whole point to is. And I'm glad you said that; you took the words right out of my mouth. You know, this sort of cult activity centered around idol worship in many ways, and maybe in the bat in the past it was like. Dionysus or Artemis or whomever, you know, Bac- Bacchanalia, <laughs> whatever. You know, there's dozens uh, of entities you can pick from, from either Greek, Roman, or whatever pantheon. But I, I think they realized the power of that and said, let's make money by creating this with a person. You see that with Elvis, you see that with the Beatles, you see that with Marilyn Manson. Or not Marilyn Manson, Marilyn Monroe. I well, you kind think. of, kind of with both. I mean, he's also a celebrity slash musician, right? But he, he, you know, that's that's decades later. I'm talking about like the first generation of stars, right? And I wonder how much of that was particularly geared in these small communities at first. Like you had maybe like local stars that were like theater acts or small time musicians that you know well,
0: it's it's funny that we even still call it stars like you yourself are saying stars and that's right. exactly what Alistair crowley used to refer to people that that were kind of like you know doing as they will is that that were stars mm. see i think that's where we get we get a lot of
2: our our terms from that time period you know when yeah I, i'm sort of in a in a spot with all of that where like it seems like there's something darker there. I just haven't quite figured it out. I mean, the obvious may be like, oh, they're channeling demons or, you know, these aliens or whatever, but it definitely feels like there's something to this occult activity. Maybe it's an egregore or a hive mind or. Just some there's something to it that I think they've geared towards the rest of us on a mass scale. I think Michael Hoffman talks about it in secret societies and psychological warfare. I'm just not thinking of the right term right now, but it's sort of like a it's like a hypnosis that they've put on a lot of people, you know, and that's part of what the awakening is that we talked about at the beginning with the whole podcast suppression topic. You know, people are waking up because they're like, oh yeah, the news, TV, that's all corporate sponsored b s you know like I want something real I want something authentic and that's why you see Joe Rogan as like one of the most popular uh, entertainment content type of thing out there because he's just himself in many ways you know he might you might not like everything he's interested in but for the most part he's just doing he's just doing Joe and that's why it is titled the way it is I think people really are into that. Maybe that's part of that same mentality of like, now everybody can be a star. And that's why they love a show like that. Cause they're like, Oh, I feel like I'm friends with this really famous guy. Cause I listen to him eight hours a week. And like, I know everything he knows. And I, now I like eating elk and I like, you know, (laughs) bow and arrow, you know, like it has that kind of like, even with our podcast, like we have people who hit us up. They're like, dude, I love that one episode you did. Like, Dude, I, I you know, if we were to hang out, like we'd smoke weed and we could, you know, and it's like I've so love when people say all that, but it's like, hey man, I don't know you from Adam, like yeah, sure we have a lot in common, but podcasting has that effect where you kind of like really get close to people, and uh, I know I'm going all over the place here, but I think that's kind of you know something they're using against us, and there's benefits, you know, there's definitely upsides to you know, what we're going through, I think the awakening is like a self-correction because nature has like these self-corrections inherent to it, you know, like these like self-correcting gears, like when something gets out of balance, this other equal and opposite force comes in and balances it. You know, I really believe
0: in very, very very karmic. I, I gotta ask you again, we're not going back into the full list of questions, but zero to 10, Joe Rogan sold some part of his soul to a, a demon in order to get to where he is. <laughs> well,
2: I have to say zero on that one just cause I'm connected to Sam and I know <laughs> you're not allowed to even say one. <laughs> I, I I respect Sam so much that I just wouldn't want to talk about his friend like that. And uh, personally, you know, I've had my ups and downs with Joe Rogan. Like I, wouldn't know who sam was if it wasn't for joe rogan's show because once i found out who joe rogan was i started listening to all these other comedy podcasts and that's how i eventually found tinfoil hat so
0: was that when you first started eating elk too
2: (laughs) he wasn't into that yet it's funny i actually i i liked a lot of joe rogan's opinions back then and i did listen like kind of like Just as background noise while I was gaming. I mean, this was like when I was in my early twenties. I would just smoke weed and game, and I'm like, "This is boring. I gotta like listen to something while I'm gaming." Because what am I doing here? I'm just wasting time. So I started listening to that. But uh, no, I think I think Joe. You know, it's interesting. Sam made a really good point while we were at his show the other night in the green room. He was talking. Eddie Bravo was there, so. Naturally, Joe Rogan came up. I forget how. But Sam made a really good point. Joe's really good at disclosing information that he doesn't necessarily believe in. So like, he'll put something out there on his podcast and say like, Oh, but that's crazy. That's ridiculous. But his show's so big that it's kind of like a soft... Disclosure, like if he came out like Alex Jones and was like, "The aliens, the reptilians, they're gonna kill you," like people
0: would be like, "Nah, that's stupid." He's obviously that fake. Alex Jones impression is way better than I was expecting it to be. By the way, <laughs> way better. I'm I'm not bad at impressions. I do. I did that black voice earlier,
2: or that southern voice earlier, but you know, whatever. You know, uh, can we anyway. hear a black
0: Alex? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> AI is going to have to come up with (laughs) that's right we could probably do that we could just blend it in we'll we'll take like little boozy and Alex Jones and just train it on the both of them but I think
2: Joe has that ability where he could like spring up like something where you know, maybe you don't necessarily have that same result that you get with Jones where people are a little more skeptical or off put by his delivery with Joe. He can be like, no, that's crazy.
0: But tell yeah, me it's more. The, about- the straight man. It's the same like if you're doing a comedy, right? You have to have the straight man that reacts to all the comedic stuff. Otherwise, nothing really makes any sense. That's right. that's the person that needs that structure, right? That's the mark. <laughs> Mm, well, that's me. I,
2: that's how I felt on Illuminati. Confirmed sometimes when Chris and Juan would uh, tee off on me.
0: But uh, really, so you you felt like the straight man sometimes on those. So yeah. what's like a what's a what's an outlandish theory that a lot of people bring up, and you can't say flat Earth because you already said it. That a lot of <laughs> people bring up, and you're just like, uh, oh, not this freaking topic again.
2: Well, I do love Tartaria for many reasons because it kind of got me. A bug in me to like look into my own local area, but I do get a little bit triggered when I hear people make some statements within that realm. And I don't want to get too specific because I, again, like there are some aspects to the whole theory concept that I think are interesting and worthwhile, but there is a lot of like people who now have like these Instagram accounts where all they do is like, show you a picture of a building and say, there's no way we could have built this in... 1850. There's no way we could have built this in 17 whatever. And I'm before just like, there were
0: like human rights violations or like you well, know any sort of exactly. workman's comp. Yeah. <laughs> well, and and I look
2: around. I'm like, dude, I live in a town that's 400 years old. Like it's almost 400 years old. Like it's on the literally on the shore is one of the first. Or towns was it
0: already there when the explorers showed up and they just see, moved in and said they made it? That's the thing that
2: that could be true, sure, and that's a big thing that people say. And I don't particularly know either way, but I think, you know, just just too convenient. Like I can go into my Milford library here in the town of Milford that was founded in 1636. And I could find like literally a list of every single person that's like lived or owned property in this town since it was founded. Right. I think that means something. It might not mean that like everything we're told is exactly how it is but i don't necessarily think that like the people who said they built this were lying to cover up you know the fact that they mar- marauded it that could be the case with certain structures like uh down in uh what is it called fort jefferson in the dry tortugas that's an interesting structure i wonder you know maybe that was built much earlier and the united states just kind of claimed it but When it comes to, you know, buildings like uh, around here where I live, it seems pretty obvious like that they were there when they said they built them and not previous to that. But why I get a little bit triggered, I guess, is more because when I started looking into it, I found out that there are actually evidence. There is evidence of uh, other cultures, let's say, beyond the British, the French, the Dutch, the Spanish and the Native Americans that had an impact here on the East Coast before Columbus. Um, And even the Native Americans whose history has been so just massacred, chopped to pieces and thrown by the wayside. I mean, literally, there's been a genocide on these people. They've been removed from their land and put in poverty. And sure, some of them are doing all right now, but I'm sure they would like to have their, their land that they...
0: Have How do you think that. they felt on 9-11? Like, what do you think the general... Consi- you think there was a big wave of patriotism within the, uh, the reservation communities?
2: I, I can't speak for Native Americans, you know? I, I just wouldn't want to. Not that I'm some kind of, like, bleeding-heart liberal, but I do think that, you know, they're particularly skeptical of anything the government does and with good reason. So I wouldn't be surprised if they immediately recognize the false flag and unfortunately i have heard from natives themselves that there are a lot of native americans that kind of are blue pilled so to speak or maybe you know they've been born into this situation where they just it's better to get along than than go against it right
0: so it did seem like bernie sanders had a certain demographic uh, locked compared to at least the the opponents when it came to that for sure
2: yeah, I mean, I'm sure Native Americans. There's plenty of support for Bernie. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know much there might, about. There might
0: be a bunch of uh, Native American Trump supporters out there, or else. Yeah, I would agree. I would uh, suspect that more than
2: anything, but I, I don't really? know. I mean, yeah, because I've seen tons of Native Americans who uh, just have like Trump flags. You know, like I, like there are certain Native American communities near me. And like you could tell, you know, sometimes they'll have like native. I'm a native bumper sticker, and they'll have like a Trump bumper sticker next to that, you know. So I've I've seen that for sure. Um,
0: but then again, it's an not- interesting dynamic to me, man. I I think it's it's uniquely American, not in like a good or a bad way, but just I think, uh, anybody- and I, I'm sure like Australia has like Aboriginals and stuff, but I feel like within America, us being so damn new. And also, like you were mentioning before, right after 9-11, people got this like patriotism thing. But then you also mentioned there was this aspect of like, I don't trust those brown people. You know what I mean? But in mm. America, it's so interesting because you could be like, I don't trust that guy over there. And the guy over there could be like, bro, I'm American. You know, like respond in like a New York accent. And you'd be like, okay, okay. You know, you, you get the pass. And then like you move on to the next one. And it's, mm. it's interesting because up until like this last century being a nationalist almost meant that you could visually decide if someone was part of your nation or not and now specifically in america like that all completely goes away and now there's like all these other cues they're like cultural cues that determine whether or not you're part of this nation i don't know i I find that beyond fascinating yeah i you know, when I
2: was a kid, I remember seeing shirts and bumper stickers that said like, uh, you know, stuff like, oh, you're worried about the illegal immigrants while well, we were here first. You know, <laughs> like yeah. they, would, they would have like pictures of Native Americans holding rifles and, and stuff. Huh? So and I always liked that kind of stuff because I'm like, yeah, they're right. You know, like what? What the hell? So. So. I don't know. I've always kind of been anti-colonialistic in that sense. But hey, then again, I, my whole life is predicated on colonialism. I think every American's life is predicated on colonialism in some way because a lot of our resources, whether we realize it or not, come from third world countries where aspects of colonialism are still alive today. Right? I mean, people who are are being basically taken advantage of for their resource wealth and it's just a sad situation around the world, so i am i i have I have a lot of empathy for the Native Americans and the indigenous people around the world and uh I kind of forget what question led us here, but I know. I don't have that much more time well, i was
0: asked I, I asked you to uh to justify why you were delivering pastries to war criminals and and you just kind of kept detracting and going on tangents and and that's oh, how we ended up there that's <laughs> rewind, rewind the right. tape but I, but i want to say that we could go on for another couple hours i wanted to get into bob marley in particular uh okay. because that's a fascinating one but we're we're going to save that one for next time and I also don't mean to drop like a huge bomb right at the end of this interview. Yeah. But, but uh, this, this one could blow it wide open. We could go for another hour, but I have to know, do you believe in dinosaurs? Well,
2: it's interesting because the same. Um, yeah, I, I don't, I, I believe less and less in dinosaurs. The more I learn about, these guys that studied dinosaurs in the 1800s, it seems like they are all in cahoots with the same people that own the oil company. And I wonder, own the oil companies, I wonder if they were in some kind of uh, plan to like give people this different notion of the earth and convert people to this more atheistic mindset to make people more uh subservient and less cuz like if somebody believes in God then they they can have no master other than God right so i think they they started to create these narratives that went against the bible and i used to not believe in this stuff i mean i for a long time when i was raised catholic i totally was like no this is all crap like i'm an atheist i don't believe in that i like science but i've really gone Did you back believe
0: in dinosaurs at that time too
2: yeah, I mean, obviously, I didn't really even think it was a question, you know, but now I think about it, I'm like, well, you know, these bones that they pull out of the ground, like, maybe they're found in ways that, like, look like certain creatures, and the way we are told, you know, oh, this was a Dilophosaurus, Del- or this is a Brontosaurus, or, you know, maybe that's just all sort of... um a reconstruction of the truth, and it's closer to the truth that like there were dragons and there were other types of maybe what we would consider more mythical beings, as the Bible describes. Right where there were all there's all this genetic manipulation going on, and people were creating like chimeras and uh, half man half horse and all this other weird stuff. I mean, who knows? Maybe that's what it is, and it's like. They don't want us to know about the time before the flood when there were all these weird creatures. Because when you look at, like, I don't know how accurate this is, but there's a stone uh, carving in Thailand or or, uh, Indonesia. I'm not sure exactly where this uh, giant Angkor Wat is. It might be in Thailand. But there's a relief in Angkor Wat of a man on a what looks like a stegosaurus. So, and he's riding the back of a stegosaurus of all animals. I mean, a stegosaurus has like plates, spiny plates on its back. So I don't know how that worked He, he out. was
0: like a prehistoric Gigi Allen or something maybe. <laughs> he was like a
2: prehistoric, I don't know, Napoleon on his horse and st- stegosaurus instead. I don't know.
0: I yeah. mean, the, the Carthaginians rode elephants, right? The war elephants, so... But elephants don't have spiny plates protruding <laughs> from their backs. So
2: it poses a different uh you know, set of problems. But it's like the
0: club. It's it's like the anti-theft device, like you can't Ooh. steal someone's Stegosaurus because you don't know like <laughs> the perfect place to sit.
2: Well, and in South America too, there's like uh stories of people flying with pterodactyls, like using pterodactyls as like uh early form of travel like is the same way you would pull a, a horse would pull a cart. These pterodactyls would pull people on like these like rigs that they would strap to them. So uh, I don't know how true that is. That could just be some sort of dream. Somebody wrote up in the 1800s and purported it as a real story. But uh I think there's a lot of like evidence to suggest that what we think of dinosaurs now is not true and i just call into question like the scientific timeline i think the the biblical timeline has more interesting aspects to it and curiously they seem to line up with some things that we find around the world but then again you know i don't know i i've talked to a lot of christians in the past few months so i could have just kind of been like uh uh biased a little bit by their perspectives you know i, I haven't looked that far into it but there's this thing that anybody who's interested in the dinosaurs whether they're real or not should look up and it's called The Bone Wars and it it comprised of two gentlemen who were friends that basically like fought each other to compete to see who can discover more dinosaurs and it seems like they just took like one type of creature and gave it like 700 different names and like moved a bone over here and said oh well this is a this is a tyrannosaurus rex point o this is a Tyrannosaurus Rex point
0: two, you know. Like, I think they were just doing that kind of science foolery. They that, were like mashing the uh, the AI generate button, right? And like, oh, I'm going to call this one of this. <laughs> yeah, well, it seems like yeah, they were just like playing with Legos when
2: they came with these <laughs> dinosaur bones. Like, who knows? Maybe better the, analogy. Yeah, maybe the dinosaur bones were actually giant skeletons that they that were supposed to be in man form. You take like six of them and rearrange them and you can make like a, Tyrannosaurus rex. I mean, who knows? They could have been like, hey, we have all these stupid giant bones that we don't want anybody to know the truth about. Let's just rearrange them and put them on display. We can carve them. We can shape them. I mean, half of the dinosaurs you see in the museum, you say, they say it's just plaster casts. It's not actually the So, real so this bone. is
0: like the, the Smithsonian is basically like Taco Bell. They've got five ingredients and they just rearrange exactly. them and like... 80 different
2: dinosaurs ways and i like taco
0: bell that's the best <laughs>
2: metaphor we could have for this it's like five ingredients and they just rearrange it a chalupa a burrito a taco it's all <laughs> the same thing and just a different presentation
0: <laughs> i think that's a good place to end this and we we covered good ground today i mean we yeah. did dinosaurs did... and crowley and flat earth and mud flood and uh, all all kinds of stuff man I would go longer if I didn't have, unfortunately, another podcast
2: scheduled. But uh, yeah, this was really fun, dude. Anytime we'll, we we'll want... have
0: a part two. We'll have a part yeah. two because these first ones are mainly interviews, and then uh, when we talk again, we can go deep on like some specific topics and stuff. And uh, uh, there's not going to be any sort of end to uh, to like where we could end up going. So I'm looking right forward up. to it, man. So right tell up. people one more time where to find you, where your podcast is at, and what you got going on.
2: So com is the best place to start. If you want to just search the name of the show wherever you already listen to podcasts, that's a great way to do it. You can support us on Patreon, Rockfin, Substack. That's where you get the show early and you get bonus content. But uh, you can find the show really anywhere you listen to podcasts. And if you don't find it on the podcast you listen to it, listen to shows on, just uh, email me. Mftic podcast at gmail.com. And if you have your own podcast, check me out, altmediaunited.com and email me, like I said earlier, altmediaunited at gmail.com, and we can uh, we can get you on the website so long as you have a podcast and you're uh you're willing to uh post your stuff on our website. There's no cost to you, and it's a great way to uh to network and maybe even grow your show, learn from others who are doing it better better than you could be. So yeah, I think that's, uh, that's a great place to start. And Paranoid American is on Alt Media United. We still got to get your uh, video feed or RSS feed on there. But uh, either way, brother, this has been fun. Let's do it again. If people have uh, uh, a hankering to hear more conversations with the two of us, they're in luck because you've been on my show. Like three or four times now, so just go and start there. If you haven't listened to my show before, go and check out Paranoid America, and just search that in the search bar, and you'll find at least four or five episodes where Thomas joins me as a guest. So,
0: word up, man! Thank you again for for coming, and uh, we're gonna have many more of these to come. And, and an extra special shout out to Sam Tripoli. Thank you for employing and creating jobs in this conspiracy theory world. That's actually like one yeah, of the coolest things. Possible.
2: Who knew that doing all this research into conspiracies and alternative history would actually amount to anything? I, I that's the <laughs> biggest thing people should take. Well, away. who
0: knew that you could become a professional video game player when we were younger too, right? Like the parents right. would be like, you know, you need to go get a job. And little did they know if you just would have stuck with that, like you can become a millionaire Twitch streamer. So exactly. parents don't know what the hell they're talking about. So, anyways, yeah, don't do what your parents tell you. And tonight I want everyone listening to listen and go out and steal one thing from target and send it to uh to mark uh, because oh, be he's the real cool. brains behind this operation. Yeah so, give me
2: <laughs> Marvel Legends Omega Kid or <laughs> Fang
0: because I don't have them yet. I'm trying to build Chad. <laughs> All right y'all I'm gonna give you like a, a five second lead start if you need to just like tap the volume down the slightest. I swear that this commercial isn't too loud but it is a little loud. So here you go. Thanks again. They said it was forbidden.
1: Are you ready to uncover the hidden? The Paranoid American Homunculus Owner's Manual, not for the faint of heart. Available now from Paranoid American. Get your copy at tjojp.com or paranoidamerican.com today.
0: This is the story of the one.